All right, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in James chapter 5. For those of you in the room or watching online with us, as Pastor Sean just mentioned, we are going to be wrapping up our teaching series on the book of James that we began all the way back in December, the weekend right after Christmas. We opened up to James 1, and we have just marched through this whole book, and we hope you've been encouraged and blessed and challenged. But maybe most of all, we hope you've just kind of had a reignited passion for reading the Scripture and really particularly this book. Uh, And then as Pastor Sean mentioned, We've mentioned it before in the service. Next weekend is Easter. I'll always remind us, Easter is our Super Bowl. It is the big day. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should all go home and find a new hobby on Sunday mornings, right? Like because he did rise from the dead, our faith is secure. There is a firm foundation. Easter Sunday is the big Sunday. It is the big weekend of our Christian calendar, of our Christian faith. And so I invite you um, to be thinking about Easter weekend, not only what service you might attend, again, in person or online, uh, but also who you might invite to join with you uh, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then finally, um, after Easter, we'll launch into a new teaching series uh, that'll really, I think, help us as we move forward as a church together. Uh, And I think that's going to be a really foundational and and really um, important sermon series for the life and health and future of our church. But for this morning, we have a task to do, and that is to finish out the book of James in chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 13. So again, if you have a Bible, have that open so you know what God is saying here. You know this is coming from the very word of God. Uh, We'll jump in with this verse. James chapter 5, verse 13. Here's how it begins. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Now here's what I'll observe. From time to time we read the Bible or I'm teaching through the Bible and we'll stumble across a verse that's complicated, that's difficult, that's hard to understand, that you need to open up a commentary or have a discussion to try to understand what the meaning and the intent of the verse is. I think we can all confess as Christians that there are complicated, difficult to understand verses in the Bible. But then I think this morning we can all agree this isn't one of them, right? Are you in trouble? Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you broke? Are you concerned? Are you sick? Are you hurting? Worried about your kids? Worried about our nation? Worried about the future? Is any one of you in trouble? Here's what you should do. Pray. That's what you should do. Now, this doesn't come as a shock to anyone. There are times I get up here and I teach something and I know this is going to stir up controversy in emails. No one's going to email and be like, I didn't know I was supposed to pray. Everyone knows this. I talk to Christians and every Christian understands, I think, at least two things. Um, Number one is that they're supposed to pray, okay? I hear this all the time. I never speak to a Christian guy. I had no idea prayer was part of the gig, right? Everyone knows I'm supposed to pray. But, But then here's the second observation, and this isn't true of everyone, but it is true of a significant number of Christians that I've discipled or spoken to or prayed with in the lobby over the years. A significant amount of Christians will say this. Maybe this is you. I know I'm supposed to pray, but Brian, can I confess to you? I'm really bad at it. I'm really bad at it. And it's surprising how many people say that. And it's not surprising to me because I think everyone should be good at it. What's surprising is how everyone who thinks they're bad at prayer actually ends up thinking they're the only ones who are bad at prayer. So I think there's some of you watching at home right now or in the room and you're bad at prayer, but you think you're the only one. You think everyone else in this room is like a prayer expert and then there's you. But let me speak to you this morning. If you are bad at prayer, if you don't feel comfortable with prayer, you feel like your prayer life is really weak, do you know what that makes you? Totally normal. Completely normal. Like again, there's some of you who hear this command to pray and prayer is just this natural thing for you. It's so built into your life that this is easy. 
But let me speak to you this morning. If you see this very simple command and you would confess, I am not very good at prayer. My prayer life is really weak. I want to teach you this morning. I want to shepherd your heart a little bit on how you might become a person who loves and delights in prayer that walks in obedience to this command joyfully. Now, now the first observation I want to make, again, for those of you who struggle with prayer, those of you who say my prayer life is pretty weak and needs improvement, I I want to make an observation, and it's a simple one, but I think you'll immediately see how important and how true it is. Here's the observation, um, that the only way to get better at prayer is to actually pray. (laughs) It's to actually pray. See, a lot of times we want to get better at prayer and we go, do you have a book for me on prayer? Do you have any sermons you could text over me, a few YouTube sermons on prayer? Do you have anyone I could talk to who could kind of coach me in prayer? And I think all of those things are good things, right? I'm pro listening to sermons. I'm pro books. I'm pro like having conversations. But at some point, if you want to get better at prayer, you're actually just going to have to put in the reps of prayer. You're going to actually have to pray. The only way you get better at the spiritual discipline of prayer is to actually pray. And so I want to try to encourage you in that this morning. But first, I want to try to define our terms. Because when I say prayer, I think a lot of you have kind of a different understanding or a different thought that pops into your mind when I say prayer. And I want to try to coach you in a particular kind of prayer this morning. In order to help us understand that, I want to give you a metaphor, not of the relationship we have between us and God when we pray, but of the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. So whether you're married or not married, this will make sense to you, I think, intuitively. Let me talk to you about communication within the context of a marriage. Let me talk to you about communication in the context of a marriage. To me, there are three really different types of communication that happen in a marriage. Maybe there's more, but just go with me here on these categories. The first is this, it's pleasantries. It's good morning, good night, hello, goodbye, thank you, and you're welcome. It's the things that are just ingrained into us. We don't have to think to say it. We just kind of say it because it's habit. We say it because that's just how you relate to another human being. The second are updates throughout the day. And I'm talking about little text messages. When I'm here at work and my wife is home with the kids, it's just little things like, hey, thanks for helping with the kids this morning. Or, hey, on your way home, do you mind picking up like a gallon of milk? It's casual. It's informal. It's not really intentional and formal. It's not like I get my phone out and text, dearest wife, comma, and then I like to write this essay. I just kind of text it over to her and we never really wrap up the conversation. It's just kind of open and ongoing. It's not like, thank you for speaking with me today. I shall talk to you later. Like we don't do that. And you don't do that. It's informal. It's open-ended. It's little updates throughout the day. And then here's the third thing. There's kind of like an uninterrupted time. Maybe on a date night or after the kids have gone down to bed where we're just kind of talking and really talking in depth about the things that are going on in our life. And this is the metaphor I want to give you when it comes to prayer. Because when I say prayer, it could mean a lot of different things to you. But let me kind of show you how this fits in your relationship with God. I think all of us in our prayer life should have pleasantries with God. Just when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I just go, God, thanks for life and breath this morning. Thanks for waking me up here. There are just little moments that things are ingrained into me. Even saying grace before a meal, it's just something that's so been built into the patterns that sometimes I go to eat and go, oh, I gotta pray, right? It's just something that's kind of built into us. Then there's these updates throughout the day. Like, I think part of our prayer life should involve me walking into a meeting and knowing that meeting's gonna be on a really complex subject and just going, God, as I walk in, just give me wisdom in this meeting. Give me courage in this meeting. Sometimes I'm driving into work in the morning. I'm a little bit tired and I just go, God, give me energy because I'm exhausted right now and I need you to build me up a little more. Sometimes I'm dealing with a person who's a little bit difficult or dealing with a situation that I know could be dramatic and I go, God, just give me wisdom and patience here to help this. It's little updates throughout the day. These little prayers I throw up to the Lord. 
But then there's this uninterrupted time. This uninterrupted time where you carve out 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes, an hour just to sit with the Lord, just to be before him in prayer and to commune with him and have that discussion. And it's that kind of prayer I want to talk to you about this morning. Because here's what I'm convinced of. I think this is true for many, if not most of you, that most of you, when it comes to prayer, you know the pleasantries. You know the little moments where you're just kind of throwing up prayers to God, you're ending small group, and everyone just says, let's pray. Like, like, it's good to do that. I'm not trying to downplay that. I think it's important. You, you know the little updates throughout the day. You have little moments where you pray, and you're just kind of going throughout the day, and you involve the Lord. But what I would observe is I think for many people, we've missed kind of that uninterrupted time when we carve out a time just to sit before the Lord and do nothing but pray. And I want you to imagine with me a marriage relationship that only has the first two of these things, that only says good night and good morning, hello and goodbye, and only texts throughout the day, but never has a moment where you're sitting and talking and really communing with one another. Listen, I don't know if anyone in this room would describe that as a healthy marriage a husband and a wife who never really spend uninterrupted time together just talking. And I think the same is true with your relationship with God. See, I think at some point you have to learn to put prayer, these extended times where you're just communing with the Lord into your schedule. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. That's what I want to help us do this morning. I want to talk to you for a moment about how you might build that into your life through this. I want to talk about the four keys to a fruitful prayer time. A prayer time where you set 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 35 minutes, an hour aside to be before the Lord. Let me give you four keys to that. The first is this, that you will schedule it because nobody drifts into prayer. It's just so rare that I hear someone's like, hey, I was just walking along the street and suddenly 45 minutes alone with the Lord. I didn't know how it happened. It doesn't occur. Sometimes it does, but it's more rare than you think it is. The people who pray regularly decide that they're going to pray regularly. And the reason they decide that is because they put it on their schedule, just like everything else important we put on our schedule. If you have a meeting with your boss, my guess is it's already on your calendar. If you have a doctor's appointment coming up this week, I'm guessing it's written down somewhere for those of you who are old school, or, or it's in your phone. I'm guessing if you have things for your kids or a trip you're taking, you have put it in your calendar. Why? Because we put things that matter into our calendar. And my, the conviction that I've just been under for a little while here for my own life, and maybe some of you will resonate with this, is for so long I had all the meetings, all the things I had to do on my calendar, but prayer didn't make it anywhere in there. Like if you grab my phone and hit the little search function on the calendar and hit prayer, it would not pop up anywhere. And that's just a conviction for me that if I'm really going to be serious about spending uninterrupted time before the Lord, I've got to schedule it out. I've got to put it on my calendar just like I would a meeting or a doctor's appointment or anything else. You gotta have a schedule. You gotta know when it's gonna happen. The second is this, that you gotta find a space because distraction is the enemy of prayer. It's not just I wanna know when I'm going to do it. It's I gotta know where I'm going to spend that time with the Lord. Well, look, let me put it this way. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got like little ones running around, 8 a.m. on a Tuesday morning in your living room probably isn't a good place for prayer, right? It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna work. It's chaos, it's kids, they need breakfast, they're going off places, everything's happening in that moment. Probably not a good place for prayer. If you work in an office and you're in a cubicle and you think, oh, I'll do it during lunch at my office in the cubicle, but there's noise and chaos and people all around, it's probably not a good space. See, the first thing is scheduled. The second thing is you finding a space to do it. Your front porch at 6 a.m. in the morning, your back porch at 8 p.m. at night after the kids have gone down to bed, Maybe there's a trail you can walk on, a place you can go to, somewhere you where you can separate yourself from the distractions that become the enemy of prayer. 
It's deciding where I'm going to pray, and then it's deciding what gets to come in or out with me. What doesn't get to come into the space when I pray? And I'll just be honest with you, the, the number one thing that never gets to come into my prayer time is my phone, okay? That is just a source of distraction like no other. And I mean, even if I turn it on to airplane mode, like I'm going to be spiritual and not have this on at all, it still becomes a distraction to me. And then I justify bringing the phone into the prayer time because I'm like, okay, well, my Bible's on my phone, and so I'm going to need that with me, as if physical Bible's never been invented. Or I think to myself, oh, I need my phone because I need to know what time it is, as if no one's ever come up with the concept of a watch, right? Like, this is what we need to do. We need to decide, how am I going to get into a space that isn't going to distract me? Third, I want to talk to you about structure. Structuring your prayer time. Because winging it usually never works. This will actually end up bothering some people who really love prayer and and think prayer is just such a core part of their life. Um, Because I think for some of you, you go, well, if there's a structure, that'll feel stiff and rigid. And like, that's not how I'm supposed to pray. But if you're new to this, if you're new to really setting aside time to commune with the Lord and sit before him, I believe just winging it and hoping it works out is never really the right strategy. And that structure will actually help you build that muscle toward being someone who can go pray and actually just let the spirit lead. Here's the metaphor I'd give you. So there's this wonderful piano sitting right behind me right now. Um, And and if I were to go up to that piano and sit down, here's what you need to know. Uh, Never taken piano classes, know nothing about the piano whatsoever. So if you said, Brian, just go hang out with the piano, 30 minutes, just do some music. I would go up and be so confused, right? I'd start hitting keys and kind of thinking through maybe something I've heard before. But that wouldn't work at all, right? What I would need is someone to come coach me. To be like, this is how you do it. This is how you can practice. This is what you need. In the beginning, I have to work at it because I'm new to it. I'm out of practice. But if Michelle Toombs or one of our worship leaders went up and I just said, go play the piano for half an hour, she could do it effortlessly. She could wing it. Why? Because she's built that muscle. She is in practice. And so again, for those of you who are saying, I want to set aside a prayer time, I want to urge you, if you've never done it before, to have a structure. The structure can be as simple as a list that you pray through and you start at the top, you end at the bottom, and when you're done, you're done. It could be some other kind of structure you found. I love to start by praying for myself and my own concerns and anxieties and sin and holiness, and then going out to my family, then my small group, then my church, then the community, then the world. Whatever the structure you choose is, there's many of them. It's not about finding the right structure. It's about deciding you're going to have a structure so that you can work that muscle, so that you can build into the practice of prayer. And then finally, scripture. Because God has something to say too. Like when I go into prayer times, I try to like go carve out a little bit of time, put it on my calendar, have a structure, read a little bit of the Bible, listen to what God's voice has to say, respond in prayer. It's not perfect. It's not formulaic. It doesn't always go perfectly. Sometimes I go into a prayer time and come out and go, I don't think I did very well at all. But the point is that I become the type of person who's actually praying. I build these patterns into my life so that I can walk in obedience to the command of James 5.13 and other scriptures that tell me I'm supposed to pray, that that's supposed to be a normal part of the Christian life. So here's my question for you. As we go into this week of Easter, as we go into what's called Holy Week in the Christian calendar, here's my question for you to wrestle with. Why not put a prayer time on your calendar this week? What if actually before the sermon ended today, for those of you online, before you turn off the stream, for those of you in the room, before you get to your car today, what if you just put a prayer time on your calendar? 6 a.m. Tuesday morning, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. I'm going to do it at 8 p.m. on Thursday. You just chose to put that on your calendar. 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be an hour. Just start somewhere. 
What if you put that on your calendar this week and began to build that practice into your life? James 5.13 says, if anyone's in trouble, anxious, overwhelmed, sick, needing help, you should pray. It goes on this way in the back half of verse 13 to tell us this. It says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. In other words, are you happy? Are you blessed? Are you encouraged? When you think about God and what he's done for you, are you overwhelmed with gratitude? When you think about the world and the opportunities you have to serve and love others, are you just happy? If you're happy, what should you do? You should sing songs of praise. And I think James here is working off this internal logic. In other words, there's an underlying idea here. And the underlying idea here is the person who is happy about what God has done for them should respond to that, respond to that blessing through singing songs of praise. And here's what I think the underlying logic is here, this statement, that our love for God is incomplete until it is expressed. Our love for God, our passion for God, our joy in God is an incomplete love until it's expressed. And here's what you know. You know this is true in every other relationship in your life, right? You know that your love for your spouse is incomplete if you never tell them that you love them. You know that your love for your kids is an incomplete love until you express that love for them. You know this in all these areas, and yet it's true with God as well. When I was in college, I had a professor who told the story of an older couple who had been married four decades. And as they got along in marriage, the husband suddenly stopped telling the wife, I love you. And she dealt with this for years and years and years until eventually she got up the courage to confront her husband and say, why don't you tell me I love you anymore? And the husband takes a deep breath. He sighs and says, honey, I told you once, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) We all know how ridiculous that is, right? That doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work with your children, right? Like, hey, sorry, kiddo. I told you when you were two that I loved you and you're just gonna have to hold on to that one because that's all that's coming, right? That doesn't work. And yet the same thing is true with God. Our love for him is incomplete until it's expressed. And here's what I know. This means practically. Um, Here at Calvary, I, I know there are many of you who just love to sing. When we worship, it is just the highlight of your week to gather together with God's people and sing in worship. But then there's another contingent maybe of you that, that, that whether you're at home or whether you're here um, in, this, in the sanctuary right now in the worship center um, who, who just don't want to sing. And for some reason you've convinced yourself you're just not a singer or you don't want to do it and you don't want to sing. And you've said this, God knows my heart so I don't need to sing. And here's what I'll say to you this morning. God knows your heart and still commands you to sing. He still commands you to sing. Like you just don't get to write off singing as some optional part of the Christian faith. It is commanded. It says, love your neighbor, that's a command. It's all these commands that you're supposed to do. Singing is one of those commands. It's something we're instructed to do. And if you go, well, I don't sing because I don't have a very good voice. Can you just follow the mantra that I use? That what I lack in talent, I try to make up for in volume, okay? That's the mantra, right? Like, I don't have any skill. No one wants me leading worship, but I just try to sing it out anyway. And if you're so uncomfortable with singing, welcome to the best time ever to sing. You're wearing a mask, so no one can hear you anyway. Again, singing is not an optional part of the Christian faith because our love for God is incomplete unless it is and until it is expressed. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. If you're happy, if you're joyful, 
if you're grateful for what the Lord has done, if you recognize who God is and how much joy and happiness and delight he has brought into your life, the right response, the appointed consummation of that is for you to sing songs of praise. And Calvary, may it always be said of us that we are a place where the praises of God go up to heaven, where God is glorified, not just in our hearts and the way we feel, but in how that's expressed when we gather together. It goes on this way in verse 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. So this paragraph, this section of scripture we just read is just filled with rich content and could probably be a sermon in and of itself. And maybe it could be someday. And what it's doing is it's living in this tension of the fact that we get sick from time to time. And when it talks about sickness, it's talking about a physical bodily ailment that you're going through, a real disease you have in your body. And the tension that exists in this text is the fact that we get sick and we're commanded to pray for healing. We are told that we are to pray for healing, believing by faith that God can heal us. Uh, And yet the unspoken tension is this, that sometimes we pray for healing in ourselves or someone else, but God doesn't choose to heal. And that is the tension we live in as a Christian. As a believer, we believe God can heal. We're commanded to call out to him to heal. uh, And yet sometimes he's not going to choose to do it. So to resolve this tension, sometimes people go one of two directions that I want to urge you not to go. The first direction they go is just not pray for sick people at all. They go, God's going to do what God's going to do. And I'm just going to focus on getting well and doing what I can. I'm not going to pray about it. That's one error you can make. The second error people make is they say, yes, God tells us to pray. And we're supposed to pray for healing. But the reason people don't get healed is because they don't have enough faith. And so they start to get into this theology that says, if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. And the reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. And that is also an error in our thinking. What we live in is this tension that God calls us to pray for healing. uh, And yet he is not always going to do it. But that does not negate the command that we're supposed to cry out to him. And it doesn't negate God's goodness. So this is the tension that we see in this text. And there's all these words flying around about healing and about elders and about oil and about confession and repentance and sick people being well. And here's what I want to present to you this morning. I want to try not to answer every question in here because, again, I think that could be a full sermon to itself. But I want to try to point out three words in the three verses we just read. Three words that stand out to me. Three words that I believe if you can cling on to them, you'll realize that the book of James is being written for your joy, for your good, for your well-being. There's three words I want to point out. It's the words in the text. It's the word elders, the word oil, and the word confess. All right, so we're going to look at those three words. The words elders, oil, and confess. These three things written for your good, written for your well-being. Let's look at the word elders. The word elders here reminds us that we need to be a part of a local church. Elders in the New Testament are the governance structure over a church. Here at Calvary, we have staff, we have our senior pastor in Sean Thornton, but Sean Thornton is part of an elder board, a group of individuals who governs the life and direction and vision and theology of our church. Elders are put in place at local churches. And the key here when we see the word elder is that if we are going to work um, with God toward our well-being, toward our good, we're going to have to be part of a local church. And listen to me, this comes as such a strange thing in our culture today. 
Because in our culture, even in kind of the Christian subculture, there's this desire to kind of say like, I'm not going to be part of one church. I'm going to kind of get what I need from all different churches. So I like the worship over there and the teaching over here. And I like the, the, the ministries over here and the classes over here and the groups over here. And we just kind of use different churches for those things. And listen to me. There's nothing wrong with being part of a church and saying, you know what, they have this specific thing that kind of helps me, or I go to this church, but sometimes I just love to visit another. That is totally fine. The error comes in when we fail to commit to some place. We're kind of committed to everywhere, so we're not actually committed to anywhere. And the call for you in the New Testament, the way you can obey the commands in the New Testament is to be plugged into a local body where you say, this is where I serve and this is where I give and this is where I love people. This is where I invest my time, my talent, my treasure. And when I get sick, this is the place where I call upon the leadership of the church to come pray over me. And that's why we need to be part of a local church. It's not for some other reason. It's for our good, for our well-being in this world. That's where the word elder comes in. The second word we're going to look at is the word oil, the word oil. So what I'm going to argue is that oil is referenced here that we might embrace the common grace of medicine. So let me put it this way. Um, All throughout the Old Testament and, and even in the New Testament, there are these places where oil is used as medicine. Not every commentator on James chapter 5 is going to agree with this assessment, but I think it's intriguing to think about the places like Leviticus chapter 14 or Isaiah chapter 1, where oil is used as a connection to medicine. Oil is used for medicinal purposes. And then maybe most famously in the Gospel of Luke, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you've probably read that parable your whole life, but never really stopped to linger on the fact that when the Samaritan finds the man who's all beaten up, it says he binds up his wounds with oil. Oil, it's used as a medicinal purpose in the New Testament. So again, some are going to disagree with this, but I think it's an intriguing thing for us to consider the value of oil when it comes not to, I'm not here like advocating for like essential oils. Come see me in the lobby. Like that's not it, okay? But what I am saying here is that when they reference oil, they are talking about medicine. And what we're called to do is to embrace the common grace of medicine. But when we use the word common grace, theologically, what that means is there is a specific kind of grace that is given to those who have accepted Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, welcoming into the family of God, eternal life forevermore. Those are specific graces. But then there's this common grace that God gives to all people whether they know him or not, whether they trust him or not, that we all enjoy. The the Bible talks about the rain and the sun comes down on the wicked and the just alike. There's a common grace that everyone can buy into. And one of those common graces is medicine. And one way for us to understand this text is to say this, um, child of God, when you are sick, you do not have to choose between prayer and medicine. And sometimes I think that's the choice that's presented to us. Like forget prayer, that never works. Let's just go see the doctor and take medicine. Or on the other side, people go, no, 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 don't have medicine. Don't take that thing. Don't take that pill. Just go pray about it and that'll make all things better. But you know what we're free to do? We're free to take both. We're free to say that I'm going to go see a doctor. I'm going to go take the medication I need to take and I'm going to pray about it. Does that mean we never have ethical concerns with a kind of medication? Of course not. We're going to think about it. We're going to pray about it. If there's something that doesn't really work, we're not going to buy into that. But we do not have to reject one or the other. For our well-being, we need to be a people who receive the common grace of medicine and rely on prayer and not act like the two are in conflict with one another and not act like someone who takes a medication is somehow not trusting God. Because all throughout the New Testament, there's this common grace. It is the idea that we can receive things from the world. We can receive what happens in this world because God's grace has permeated in such a way that we can receive what is good for the world while rejecting what is not. 
The first word is elders, the idea that we should be involved in a local church for our well-being. The second is oil, that we can receive this common gift uh, of medicine. The third word I want to talk to you about is the word confess. The word confess is important because secret sin will always work against your peace. It always will. Now, some of you in here confess based on your background or the tradition you grew up in. Hear the word confess and you think a booth with a specific formula of how you do confession. That is not what the New Testament is talking about here. When the New Testament says confess, it simply means to say what is true. To say out loud to another believer, I'm struggling with sin. I love Jesus. I want to walk with him. And yet here's a sin. Here's an addiction. Here's a secret I have. Here's something I'm standing under the weight of. And let me just clarify for you this morning. Anytime you have a secret sin, anytime there's something in your life you haven't confessed, you are suffering under the weight of it. It is working against your peace. You will never find peace in this world if you have secrets that you're trying to keep from everyone. And the New Testament is going to plead with you to drag that into the light, to tell someone else about it, to invite someone else into the struggle with you. And the reason it's so clear about this is because the cross of Jesus Christ already outed you as a sinner. Like Jesus wouldn't have had to die for you if you weren't already a sinner. And so you saying, hey, I have a secret to tell you, I'm a sinner, isn't shocking. Jesus already went to the cross publicly. Everyone knows you're a sinner. And so we bring that out into the light for our own well-being, for our own good. When we confess and repent, we receive a gift that's for us. And here's what I love. Like thousands of years ago, this is written down in the New Testament. All throughout the scripture, there's this idea that we should be bringing our sin, not just stuffing it down and pretending it's not there, but bringing it out into the light. And then one of my favorite things when I'm thinking about um, the scriptures, when I'm studying, when I'm kind of prepping for this message, um, is when I run across secular research, like non-Christian thinking, that starts to suggest that maybe the Bible was onto something in the first place. So, so let me share one of those with you. So I was looking at this interview this week um, with a, a neuroscientist named David Eagleman, not, not a believer, everything I can understand, secular, no faith in Jesus. And, and yet here's what he said in this interview. Fascinating. He said, your brain doesn't like to keep secrets. Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, have shown that writing down your secrets in a journal or telling a doctor your secrets actually decreases the level of stress hormone in your body. Keeping a secret, meanwhile, does the opposite. Your brain also doesn't like stress hormones. So when you have a secret to tell, the part of your brain that wants to tell the secret is constantly fighting with the part of your brain that wants to keep the information hidden. Listen, one of my favorite things in the world is when research in the modern world finally catches up with what the Bible's been saying forever, okay? And I don't say this as some jab at research. I think it's an amazing thing. I just think the more you trust the Bible, the more you'll realize that it actually works in this world. It's not just some random old religious text that we just happen to believe in. It actually works. It's actually functional. The idea that you would confess and repent is doing something in the neurochemistry of your brain that when it was written, no one could have even told you the word neurochemistry. And yet here we go. We're learning all along what the scriptures were saying was true. It was beautiful. And it's right for all of us. See, here's what happens. Um, The Bible is going to tell us over and over again that we are to confess our sins before the Lord. I'll put it this way to you, in fact. The confession um, to God is a given. And when I say it's a given, I mean that you cannot be saved if you will not confess that you are a sinner to God. If you think, I don't need to confess, I don't need to tell God I'm a sinner, I don't need God, I don't need a Savior. If that's you, you're not saved. Because the only people who can be saved, the only people who can be made right with God are the people who call out to God recognizing that I am a great sinner in need of a great Savior. It is a given for the Christian life that you would confess your sins to God. But hear me on this. Confessing your sins to another is a gift. 
It's a gift that God wants to give you. It's a gift that you received. And when you tell someone about it, you come out from under the weight of that sin and that secret that is twisting you up. And I wanna urge us to always be a church that's willing to tell people our secrets, that's willing to tell people the sin going on rather than bearing under the weight of it. It goes on this way in verse 16. It says in James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is James chapter five, verse 16. And from time to time, I tell you, if there's a Bible verse to memorize, this is one of them. This is one sentence. And yet I believe it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. It says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Like your prayer affects reality itself. And it's effective. Like God uses it to advance his purposes in this world. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 5, 16, one of the most amazing verses in scripture. And yet there's this thing that can really quickly happen when we see James 5, 16, where we can get twisted up so quickly into a kind of legalism without even realizing it. So here's my fear. It says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the temptation for some of you might be to think this, this sentence, if I am righteous, my prayers will be powerful and effective. Fact check, true. So it's time to clean up my act. Listen, if I want my prayers to be powerful and effective, I gotta stop doing the bad things. I gotta stop sinning so much. I gotta kind of confess my secrets. I gotta stop lusting so much and being angry so much and swearing so much and doing the bad things. And I gotta start going to church more often. I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta do some of those prayer times Brian was talking about. I've gotta be a super Christian and clean up my act. And can I tell you how tempting it is for you to fall into a workspace righteousness like this? You see the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And for some of you, you immediately went to, I've got to earn my way. I've got to be a good boy and a good girl. And if I'm really good, then my prayers will be powerful and effective. But can I remind you of a truth this morning? Can I remind you of the idea that you earn your righteousness before God is not the gospel. It's something else entirely. That is not the message of the Christian faith. Can I tell you what the message is here in James chapter 5, 16 that you need to hold on to? It's this, that I am righteous because of Jesus and therefore my prayers are powerful and effective. Child of God, do you realize that Jesus Christ has given you righteousness, not by your own doing, not by your works, not by your morality, and therefore your prayers have power and they are effective? Child of God, your righteousness is not of your own, it's a gift. And because of that, Every person in this room who trusts Jesus, the scriptures tell you that your prayers are powerful and they're effective. Isn't this jet fuel to your prayer life? Like when you actually go because of the righteousness of Jesus, God hears my prayers, not as me as the sinner and filled with wickedness, but through the righteousness that's given to me through Christ Jesus. That is jet fuel to the Christian prayer life. It is you recognize that my prayers are powerful and they're effective, not because of the righteousness I've earned, but because of the righteousness Jesus gave to me through his cross and through his resurrection. It's gonna go on in verse 17 to say that Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and then the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. So I won't spend long on the story of Elijah, but we did a series uh, a couple of years ago on Elijah and Elisha. It's called Courageous Faith. You can find that on our website. And it goes through the whole story of Elijah and his life and then his protege named Elisha, which is confusing. And we can ask God about that someday, but, but that's the series. And that's the story. 
And here what I wanna do is not kind of retell the whole story of Elijah, but rather to linger on, on something interesting here. We'll put it up in verse 17. Um, in, in verse 17, it's going to tell us here that Elijah is interesting to James as he's writing about this. And what I love is that Elijah isn't interesting to James because of how spectacular he was, but because of how human he is. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, just like us, normal, average, ordinary, boring, not spectacular. That's the thing you need to recognize about people God uses to great effect in the Bible. It's not that he uses spectacular people to do great things. This is the God in the Bible, hear this, uses average, ordinary people to accomplish great things in this world because that's the only type of human being there is. Average, ordinary human beings like you and like me who are just trying to follow Jesus, trying to stay faithful, trying to love our kids and love our spouse and do our job and stay afloat in this world. That's who God uses to change families, to change churches, to change communities and nations and the world. Average, ordinary people. Be encouraged by that this morning. God doesn't need you to be some kind of super Christian to use you because there is no such thing as a super Christian. There's just followers of Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, welcomed into being faithful. And God uses those type of people, including Elijah, who's just like us, to do great things in this world. And then here's the final two verses of the book of James. It says in verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way would save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The end. That's how it ends. If you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, it's often very clear. He goes, thank you for reading my letter and here's what I'm gonna do. And it's just all these things at the end that are really interesting and beautiful and wonderful, but it's really clear that he's gonna end. And James just kind of abruptly ends at, bring someone back from the error of their ways, save them from death, cover a multitude of sins. This is the final words of James. And I believe they're intentionally the final words of James because James wants to leave us with this powerful statement of something he wants us to recognize and something he wants us to do. Well, let me show you what he wants us to recognize. Let's go back a verse to verse 19 here. It says this, my brothers and sisters, which is a formulation he uses throughout the whole book, right? We keep seeing this, my brothers and sisters. If one of you should wander from the truth. And here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is always going to be honest about the nature of reality. The Bible doesn't make up some fantasy world that we live in. The Bible recognizes the realities of this world, even the hard realities of people wandering away from the Christian faith. Well, let me put it to you this way. The Bible assumes, the Bible assumes that people are going to wander from the truth. The Bible assumes that people are going to wander from the truth. The Bible assumes that people are going to walk away. The Bible assumes it. And yet we sometimes have this weird reaction where when someone walks away from Christian faith, we're shocked. We're surprised. Someone who grows up in the church goes off to college and isn't following Jesus and we're shocked. A child or grandchild rejects the faith of their childhood and we're so surprised. Someone who was in your small group in this last year got distracted by all the things of the world and they're off doing their own thing now. We always act surprised, but the Bible never is and God never is. That doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it's not emotional, especially when it's our kids or our grandkids. It just means that the Bible is going to assume there are gonna be people who wander from the truth. It assumes it's gonna happen. It takes it for granted that this will happen from time to time, but then it gives us something to do about it. If the Bible is going to assume that people will wander from the truth, the Bible is also going to command that we help bring them back. That's a command of God on your life and on mine. People are gonna wander and it's not someone else's job. It's not the pastor's job. It's not some other person's job to bring them back. It's your job. 
It's my job. It's all of our jobs as followers of Jesus. Now, here's the concern. I say that it is your job to help bring someone who is wandering back into the truth. So you think of your kid, you think of your grandkids, someone who is in a small group with you, someone you used to know, you grew up with, they were walking with Jesus, and now they're not. And you go, you know what? It is my job. But here's the problem. This is where we mess it up so many times. The default tools we tend to turn to when someone wanders away from the truth tend to be things like guilt, shame, manipulation. So so we see they're wandering from the truth and we say, hey, I haven't seen you in church in a while. Hey, I know you haven't been at group in a while. Wonder if you're okay praying for your soul. And we're not actually praying for them. We're just telling them we're praying for them. So they feel kind of guilty. But we shame them and we talk to them about things or then we manipulate them. We're like, you got to come to church with me or else I'll be all alone. You don't want me to be all alone because when I'm all alone, I'm sad. And you don't want me to, like we, we manipulate them. And here's what we do. We bring out these tools of negativity and manipulation and shame and guilt. And here's what I want you to know this morning. Those of you who have wanderers in your life, and I assume that is most of you, okay? Know someone who used to be walking with Jesus but isn't. Here's what I need you to know about the wanderer in your life. The wanderer in your life does not need your guilt, shame, and manipulation. And the reason they do not need your guilt, shame, and manipulation is because guilt, shame, and manipulation does not work. Or I'll rephrase it. It does not work in the long term. Because it can work in the short term, right? You ever notice how much you can guilt someone or shame someone or manipulate them into doing something for like a week? Usually works pretty well. If you hound them hard enough, they'll probably say yes. But it never has long-term power. Guilt, shame, and manipulation never have long-term staying power. So if you have a wanderer in your life, someone who's walked away from the truth, walked away from the faith, walked away from church, walked away from your small group, what do you do? And I'm not going to try to give you tips and tricks or a four-step process or something that begins with a letter P or anything like that. I want to give you a story this morning. I want to give you a story that'll help you get your head around how do we help the wanderer come back to the truth? And the story is one we've read a few times already this morning. Uh, it's the story uh, of Palm Sunday. If you don't know the church calendar, Palm Sunday is this Sunday where Jesus triumphantly comes into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. It's going to be five days later on Friday, he's going to be crucified. And a week from today that he's raised from the dead. It's called Palm Sunday because they cut off branches from palm trees and laid it down before him like a conquering king coming into Jerusalem. And it's this Palm Sunday story that we see in Matthew 21 that I want to share with you and dial in on to answer this question. How do we help the wanderer in our life? Let's show this. Matthew 21 and verse 9 says, The crowds that went ahead of him, that's Jesus, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a word that just means save now, rescue us, God. You are the one who saves us. You deserve our worship and our praise. Hosanna is a declaration of who God is, and it is a prayer that God would rescue. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It goes on this way in the next verse. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And here's what I want to observe to you this morning. Jesus enters into the city, and what does it say? It says the whole city was stirred. In other words, everyone was kind of like, hey, what's going on over there? Hey, did you hear about what happened down on the street? Like, everyone's kind of stirred up. Everyone has questions. Everyone wants to talk about it. It's the thing that everyone's leaning in on. And why is the whole city stirred? Two reasons. Number one, the exaltation of Jesus. Everyone's celebrating him. They're calling him the king. They're lifting him up, saying he has all authority. He's the king. They're lifting up Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus. And then what's the second thing we see here? There's an enjoyment of Jesus, right? 
doesn't say the people just kind of stood still, terrified of Jesus. It says they're celebrating, they're laying down palm branches. It's this festival, this wonderful celebration of Jesus. And here's my contention. In this story, it is the exaltation and enjoyment of Jesus that stirs the whole city to ask, who is this? And then they get to respond that this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So you think about the wanderer in your life, the person who's far from God, wandered from the truth, left the church, left your small group, going and doing other things. Do you know what they need? The wanderer in your life needs to see your enjoyment and exaltation of King Jesus. That's what they need. That's what the wanderer in your life needs. The person, the kid, the grandkid, the friend who's walked away from Jesus. They need to see your exaltation of Jesus and your enjoyment of Jesus. Now, now listen, for some of you, that just seems a little too simple or rote. Um, and you're kind of skeptical of this. But can I submit to you that that's the reason you do almost everything you do? It's because you see someone else lifting something up or enjoying it? Well, like probably the last book you read, it was because someone somewhere, whether it was on social media or in person, said, hey, I read this book and it was awesome. You should read it. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll read that. Or like the last movie you saw, I don't know if you remember movies, place we went to, big theater thing, don't worry about it. Okay, but those, like the last one you saw is because someone went and saw it and they're like, this was awesome. And you're like, I want to watch too. And think about it, if, uh, if a restaurant in town mailed you a little mailer and said, come eat at our restaurant, you're probably taking it and throwing it in the trash can, right? But if your best friend says, I just ate at this restaurant, new restaurant in town, best meal I've had in the last year, you're probably more likely to do it. Why? Because when we exalt something, when we lift it up, and when we enjoy something for everyone to see, it draws other people in. That's what the wanderer in your life needs. Not guilt and shame and manipulation, not a post on Facebook about how terrible people who don't go to church are, or a phone call telling them how bad their sin is. They need to see your exaltation of King Jesus and your enjoyment of King Jesus. And could there be a more perfect week for us to do exactly that? Could there be a more perfect week for us to tell our neighbors and our friends, hey, hey listen, I'm heading to church on Sunday because it's Resurrection Sunday, it's Easter. I'm so excited. I love my church. I love my Jesus. Would you come with me? Or to the person who's watching online, you're not sure yet if you want to come on campus to just say, hey, here's the link. Here's a Facebook link. Here's a YouTube link. Would you join me as we celebrate this Sunday? See, what the person in your life needs is to see that you actually enjoy Jesus, that you exalt Jesus. And this is the opportunity we get this week to invite other people into the exaltation of King Jesus and the enjoyment of him. Listen, every year around this time of year, there's surveys that come out of American adults who are not church. Don't go to church anywhere. Don't believe in Jesus. And you know what's always surprising to me? A vast majority of American adults would attend a church service. They're open to it on Easter, especially on Easter. And the number one reason they state for why they don't actually go to a church service is tragic. The number one reason they state is because nobody invited them. Nobody invited them. They're open to it. Just no one ever invited them. Calvary, may that never be said of us. May it never be said of the Canal Valley that no one invited someone in. May this be a week where just no one in this valley gets to go through this week without at least knowing your excitement and your exaltation and your enjoyment about who Jesus is and giving them an invitation to lean in this Easter to the hope that's in Jesus. You see, right at the beginning of this series, all the way back in December, we stated that this was a book, the book of James, was about a faith that works. We stated that since the beginning. And here's how I want to close with it in the book of James. I want to state this, that your faith only works if it makes a difference in this world. James 2 tells us that if you just kind of have a belief in God, where you believe there's one God, he goes, good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. No, the type of faith that actually works is the faith that is something you believe, and it flows out of you into the world. It makes a difference in the world around you. 
And I want you to know, child of God, that the greatest difference you can make in this world is to show others, help others see Jesus. Let's do that this week. Let's take that opportunity to show our enjoyment, to show our exaltation of Jesus, to welcome the wanderers and the neighbors and the lost in this world, to see the hope we have in Jesus, not because we have to, but because we love to. May that be said of Calvary Community Church. May it be true of our church that we are a place where everyone is welcome to come see this Jesus who we exalt in, who we enjoy so much, and for whom it means everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for the book of James, for our time in it over the last 14 weeks, for our time to think and pray and wrestle with difficult subjects. God, I thank you for your word and its revelation to us of who you are. God, I pray this week that people would see us enjoy Jesus, exalt Jesus. I pray people would be brought back. I pray for people who in the last year during the pandemic and everything that's happened who have wandered away from church, God, bring them back this Easter. For children and for grandchildren, for people who are far from Christ, God, I pray you would turn their hearts and that we might even play a small role in getting to do that. Holy Spirit, give us courage. Give us wisdom as we go. May we be a people who welcome back those who have wandered far and say welcome home and who exalt Jesus in the process. So God, God, help us as we go into Easter week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.